Thank you, Erica, for being vulnerable and truthful and praying that your words really encourage others. And uh, we understand what life is like in the Christian life. It's not easy, not easy. And it's often riddled with doubts and fears. Uh, and I wish you were coming with me to Guatemala. May Espanol no es tambiano. So I need a little bit of help. And you've been with me before. But uh, it's good to be back. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you, Seth. Thank you, Frank, for preaching the last three weeks. Good stuff. You can watch it all online. And I'm excited for John. And even more excited that although he transitions to become a teacher again, uh, that he stays on as our worship pastor. I'm excited for that there. I'm excited for Seth and for Porterville and the good stuff that's happening in Porterville. 35% growth in his first six months. Wow. Uh, I, think, I, I think in my first six months, we've seen 35% decline. So, hey, you know. Um, and Karen, Karen Gilchrist and I are back safely from Sub-Saharan Africa, Kenya. And Karen came back via South Africa. And I came back via God's country. Scotland. And I did get Karen on video. We, we always take a film crew with us. And uh, it was good to get Karen on video. And one day, you guys will see it. And uh, excited for that. They pray for Katrina Morshead and myself. We head down to Guatemala tomorrow. And just a few days of meetings with our Guatemalan partners, uh, Esperanza para Guatemala. And uh, you guys helped them so much. If you remember, during the horrendous volcano, that flattened the village and, and killed over 4,000 people and uh, wiped out the entire town. And you guys were right there to help. And we're so, and we're so grateful for that there. And uh, we will take your blessings and your care down to Esperanza para Guatemala tomorrow. Uh, and as for Faraha, and the school in Haruma that Karen and I and a few others were at. I got a few pictures uh, just to keep you updated. This is the high school, okay? Look at that wood scaffolding, okay? That scares you. Uh, and it, we're nearly finished. We're nearly finished with the high school. It's the highest building in Machecos County, okay? And uh, these are the students just standing there. And yeah, there was a little bit of gray gray clouds that day, but it just stands out there in the middle of nowhere. And uh, that there will be all finished within the next... Actually, the kids are all lined up here. When we were there, they'd never been in the building, even though they're very next to the building in their, their part-time temporary dormitories. They'd never been in the new building, and we've got extra footage of that, drone footage, etc., making it into a video, which we'll show you. But, uh, you know, the kids or the guys in Faraha were going to push through to get that finished by September, and it's very doable, Kenya style, maybe not so much American style. Uh, but we say, hey, guys, don't rush. Let's just get the job done as well as we can. And the school finishes the end of October in Kenya. So if they're not in till January, that doesn't matter. Uh, let's get it finished as best as we can. And then here are three of the best photos from last week when we were there in Kenya. The first one, I love this picture. Uh, I see this repeatedly when I go to Kenya. This is one of the female staffers tying the shoelaces of one of our kids. And this is a lady, because a lady in Kenya will never, will never go down on her crunches, okay? She'll always just bend like that there. It's impolite for her to go down onto her knees. Uh, so she's just bending over, tying that shoelace. And if I saw uh, this teacher, who's teacher, teacher Garetti, do it, I also saw leaders from Faraha do it. I saw Kerry, our head of education, down on his knees, tying shoelaces. And I love it when I see it. And uh, our 
our staff there just so love these children. And then the second photograph, this one here just gets me, okay? Uh, this is us at assembly, and they're asked to pray, and she's just lifting her eyes to heaven. And she's saying, God, help us. God, save us. God, keep us. And every month, Lamar helps and saves and keeps precious children in Guatemala, in Haiti, and over there in a slum in Kenya. And this is how it works. Uh, 11,000 miles away, this little, I don't know this girl's name, but this little girl was just lifting her head in prayer saying, God, keep me. And as she prays that prayer, 11,000 miles away, God's tugging on you with a whisper saying, come on, guys. Give to help, give to keep, give to save. And you guys give. And when I grow up, it's just a catalyst to take your money to there and say, hey, let's help and save and keep these kids. And it's just how God does it. And I think that's an amazing photograph. And then the last one this morning, I mean, there's hundreds of photographs. I think they're just cool, okay? I mean, these are cool kids, all right? And here's what's amazing about these guys is, uh, each of their stories is being told over the next few weeks on our social media platforms. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And you can go, when I grew up, global, and go to any of those platforms. And we just heard the story of Natasha. And, oh man, if you go on our Facebook page and read her story of, of, a, of abandonment and hopelessness, and Faraha step in and just put the arms of Jesus around these kids. And uh, I... I you just got to introduce these, these friends of yours to your other friends. Remember, we've got this Summer of Friends campaign going just now, okay? Uh, where we want to introduce our friends, Faraha, to other friends of ours that don't know about Faraha. And uh, uh, I know the offering has passed. So this is extra money that you've got in your pocket <laughs> that you weren't planning on giving to God this week. So there's a basket over here, okay? And if you want to just get that extra money that you were keeping to yourself, so it's not robbing the church, okay? The church has got his offering. This is the extra, okay? That, you, that $20 bill that you're sitting on or that $100 bill that some of you have got. Uh, leave a few dollars on those, for, for those kids and the help that you bring. Or, or maybe give on behalf of one of, your, one of your friends. Just walk up to your friend tomorrow morning and say, hey, you know when I was at church yesterday... I just gave on behalf of you because you're, you're my friend and I want to help one of our other friends over in Faraha or down in Guatemala. So give as you leave today if you wish. And Faraha's story is a part of SVCC's story and it's a heck of a great gospel story as lives have been transformed and saved both from the present of the misery that they live in in a slum to the future of knowing Christ and living together for all eternity as the people of God. So uh, it's great to have been with Karen. It's great to go again with Katrina tomorrow. And we just continue to pray for our partnership with our, the kids in Faraha and in Haiti and in Guatemala. And keep a note in your head that at the last Sunday in September, David Oginga will be here and will share something of his own story of living in poverty and in a slum and how God raised him up to be a leader and to see lives transformed. So, But let's return back to the Elijah story. 
And uh, three, three weeks before I left, we preached on the Elijah story. I think I've got about three more to go. So I'm going to preach this Sunday and next Sunday, and then Fred preaches. And I'm going to keep us in the series that we started with that startling question, you want me to do what? And it's the challenging and exciting life that Christ invites us to live. Uh, there's a very interesting verse in the New Testament spoken by Jesus a couple of times that comes at you. Either, either it comes at you like a dagger that pierces you or it comes at you like a downpour of rain on a hot, dry day in the valley just to, just to cool you down and to quench you. Here's the verse. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, Jesus was not saying here that you need more faith. He was saying that it takes very little faith to accomplish great things. It takes very little faith to accomplish great things. And to me, that is as refreshing and as enjoyable as the clouds opening up on a hot, dry day in the valley and just drenching us with coolness. You want me to do what? You want me to love my enemies? Like the people who don't like me? You want me to love them? You want me to forgive those who have offended me? Like they offended me, God. You want me to forgive them? You want me to raise my children with godly values which will mean that they miss out on what other parents give them and I'll need to teach them about justice and about generosity and about loving all people made equal in the image of God? You want me to turn the other cheek? You want me, you want me to use my retirement to go and serve Christ and his kingdom in another country on the mercy ships and not on the golf course? You, you want me to become a Christian even though my friends and colleagues view that as weak and sad? Listen to what Jesus says. It takes very little faith to accomplish great things. Being honest and avoiding gossip and rumors. Being pure in word and in deed. That's a great thing. Standing for justice. That's a great thing. Holding to right values and correct behavior. That's a great thing. Loving people, all people, even those who you disagree with. That's a great thing. Being willing to be baptized and declare to people that you're putting Jesus as number one. That's a great thing. You want me to do what? Is more often than not an invitation from God to do what we already know we should be doing. Evan McManus, pastor in L.A., wrote once, being faithful is taking responsibility for doing the good we know we should do. 
We know the choice of greatness, but very frequently we make the choice of ordinariness. We know the choice of faith, but very often we make the choice of easiness. And both the choice of ordinariness and the choice of easiness is often the choice of disobedience. But we shrug our shoulders and we turn our ears away and we remain going that same easy but ordinary way. And what most frequently drives Christians to to disobedient living is there's a certainty attached to that lifestyle. Because to choose God's path, to embrace his divine mission, is to step onto a path filled with uncertainty. And we don't like that. We don't like that. But most of us live our lives on a paradigm which has provision preceding vision. And Jesus invites us to move into the action movie where vision precedes provision. Good morning, Elijah. His vision for God's truth to be lived preceded him standing before a king. And that was uncertain what was going to happen as he stood before the king. You want me to do what? And the provision of God led him to the only water flowing in the entire nation, a brook called Kerith. There's a certainty. His vision for living obedient to the call of God on his life led him into enemy territory. Now that was uncertain. You want me to do what? And the provision of a widow to provide food and shelter? That's the certainty. His vision for demonstrating to people all around him that God was alive and well led him to a showdown on a mountain against the prophets of Baal. (laughs) That was uncertainty. You want me to do what? God provides fire and then rain. There's the certainty. In Elijah's life, he seems to be grasping that should a godly vision arise, that vision always precedes provision. And that little faith in believing in God will enable you to do great things. But we have to be willing to go to the end of the line. We have to be willing to enter into the uncertain to find the certain. So let me ask you, Tamat, how many times in the last month have you been willing to go to the end of the line? How many times has God nudged you or prompted you? And it's uncertain, but you've been willing to go that path 
Or are you just the same now as you were four weeks ago when I last spoke with you? And nothing's changed. Life's just carrying on its ordinary path. Now, let's come to Elijah today, okay? Let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you haven't got a Bible, I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, but we're in the book of 1 Kings. And we read about Elijah challenging the king about how there's not going to be any rain. We read about him being away, hidden in the brook, and then the brook dries up and he has to go to find a widow in foreign country. And she hasn't only got one handful of flour left to bake a cake, but he stays with her and battle never runs out of flour. And then we read before I went to Kenya about how he was up the mountain in Carmel and he was challenging the prophets of Baal and uh, they were to get wood and water and soak their offerings and they were to plead for their gods to come and their God never showed up. And then Elijah took water, poured it all over and prayed and God came down and burned up his offering and poured out rain. And then he ran. Ran ahead of the king with a, true, with a great victory. And that's chapter 18. Now we come to chapter 19. So listen into the first eight verses. Ahab, that's the bad king, told Jezebel, that's always a bad woman, all that Elijah the prophet had done, including a detailed account of how he'd killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this warning. May the gods judge me severely if by this time tomorrow I do not take your life as you did theirs. Elijah was afraid. So he got up and fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he went a day's journey into the desert. He went and sat down under a shrub and asked the Lord to take his life. I've had enough. Now, O oh Lord, take my life. After all, I'm no better than my ancestors. He stretched out and fell asleep under the shrub. All of a sudden, an angelic messenger touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked and right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals in a jug of water. He ate and drank and then slept some more. The Lord's angelic messenger came back again, touched him and said, get up and eat for otherwise you won't be able to make the journey. So he got up and ate and drank. That meal gave him the strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And we're going to look at the rest of that chapter next week, but let's focus here, okay? Evil Jezebel has not been so impressed with the greatness of Elijah or of Elijah's God. So she sends him some hate mail. Been there, had that, <laughs> okay? I even got one card sent to me saying, go home Taliban. I thought that was nice. You gotta love Christians. But here's where Elijah began to go wrong. He received a letter from Jezebel and he acted as though he'd received a letter from God. How many times does evil send you a letter and you suppose it came from God? I know life is hard. 
nothing is working out very well. And you assume God is telling you something. But actually it's not God. It's the devil. And he's causing you to doubt or to quit. Or or you aren't sleeping well and you're restless and on edge and you wonder, what's God trying to tell me? But it's nothing to do with God. It's the old enemy trying to unsettle you and drain you. Make sure you know the right source of the mail that you receive. So Elijah awakens to discover that despite the magnificent display of God on the mountain, and despite the rain having started, and despite the people falling down in surrender to the true God, one woman was still against him, and she wanted so badly to hurt him. And in the reading of a few short sentences, the huge page of God's faithfulness and strength was torn out of his leather-bound verse for the day, prayer of Jabez, daily bread, prayer, walk with God journal. It was gone as if it never existed. I mean, you think of the things that Elijah could have written in his journal about how God had acted in his life. His, his prophecy about the drought. It's not going to rain again, king, until I say so. And, and that happened. And he wrote it down in his journal. Or, or the raven waiters and careth spring bottled water that appeared every single day. And yet God fed and watered him every single day for over two years. Yep, yeah, I wrote that down in my journal as well, God. And daily cake and cookies with a free guest room thrown in. The widow of Zarephath's barrel of flour never ran out. Every single day he had cake and cookies and free accommodation. He wrote that down. The resurrection for a sick boy in Zarephath. That happened as well. Fire bolts from the shimmering blue sky over Carmel. That happened as well. Drought shattering cloud bursts. Really happened. Bionic marathon running. Even the king and his chariots couldn't catch him. The king following the prophet. What an amazing sight. These were all the things that Elijah had written down in his journal of how, what God had done just in the last few years. And then suddenly all this history, all this walking with God was shattered, torn from his memory by a venomous dart. And that venomous dart had a name. And that name was fear. Your Bible won't say this, but in the Septuagint translation, so the Old Testament was translated by 70 scholars, hence called Septuagint, into the Greek. And at the end of verse 2 in the Septuagint, they include this phrase, as sure as I am Jezebel and you are Elijah. Very carefully chosen words by Jezebel. She proclaimed her royalty, her authority, her power, her importance, and underlined his nothingness. In human terms, you're a mere peasant from Lamar, and I'm a king in New York. 
she was ripping out not only his daily journal page, but she was ripping out his God-given identity right down to his soul. It was a brilliant tactic. Inspiration from hell itself. And it worked. It's a remaining tactic of the devil to every child of God, suggesting you're nothing. And as you stand before a Jezebel-like boss, or as you are confronted by a Jezebel-like family member, or as you're ganged up by some Jezebel-like colleagues, or as you read a letter from a Jezebel fellow Christian, remember and remember well your identity. Your identity is found in no one less than the eternal son of the living God, Jesus Christ. Billy Bray. Billy Bray was a drunken, loose-living tin miner from Cornwall in England back in the early 1800s. Or late 1800s, sorry. He was always getting involved in fights and quarrels. But at the age of 29, he became a Christian. And he went home and he told his wife, you will never see me drunk again by the help of the Lord. And she never did. And Billy Bray was completely transformed. He began to preach and speak with magnetic power. And crowds of tin miners would come out to hear him preach. Many were converted. And Billy Bray was always walking about praising God and telling folk about Jesus Christ. And one of his favorite expressions, favorite expressions of Billy Bray, a tin miner from Cornwall in England. I am the son of a king. I am the son of a king. And he was. The son of King Jesus. And every Christian is a son and a daughter of God. No higher status in the entire universe. The spirit of God makes you this. It's your core identity. It's it's the second song that we sang in worship this morning. I'm a child of God. It's the promise of the spirit of sonship. It's the text that said in Galatians 4, no longer a slave. But Elijah, Elijah was crushed. Elijah was afraid. So Elijah runs for his life. And this powerful prophet who a chapter earlier had run under the power of God's spirit ahead of the king was back running, and this time he was running under the power of fear. Fear. This fear was not birthed in what God was asking him to do. This fear was the product of God not having done what Elijah thought God would have done. He assumed that Jezebel would have realized that she was beaten and packed her bags and returned back to her pagan father. But she stayed. She remained determined and she remained standing opposed to Elijah and Elijah's God. Elijah assumed he knew what God would have done. He was certain what God would have done. And he forgot the number one rule of the adventure of faith. 
God's prerogative not to do it my way. Fear. Fear. We all know what claustrophobia is. I get it. I can't sleep in a bunk bed without Xanax. And I fly in a steel tube that's not that very big either regularly. And I have claustrophobia. Never came until I was 45. And it just came from nowhere. I used to hide. Like we used to play hide, hide and seek. I could hide in the smallest, darkest corner of the house. Nobody could find me for hours. And now I can't sleep under a bunk bed. And I struggle in planes. Many, maybe some of us have known what acrophobia is. The fear of heights. There's also aerophobia. Fear of flying. Fortunately, I don't have that one. Fear. I had fun with this as I worked on my message on Friday in a cafe at the coast. It was hot at the coast. 74 degrees. I mean, it was a hot day, guys. I had to go to a cafe, you know. But uh, here's a few. My wife suffers from this one. Do you know what that is? Megrophobia? It's a fear of cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Or this one here, many of you suffer from this one, homiliophobia. Fear of sermons. Fear of sermons. It's got a sister one, Mac homophilia. Fear of Scottish sermons. Uh I used to suffer from this one, ketiophobia. Fear of hair. (laughs) I soon get over that one, okay? Normal people suffer from this one, dentophobia. Oh, no, go back to the previous one. Oh, no, keep it at that one. Uh, there's two words here for the one fear. Anybody know what this, these, these fears are? Fear of mother-in-laws. And there's two words for it in the English dictionary. What does that say, you know? By the end of this sermon, you will have this fear. Fear of bald men. As for Elijah, he had terrible jezeophobia. And his faith was replaced with fear. Unlike the past few years, now instead of facing the enemy, he feared the enemy. Now instead of fighting to save the future, he feared the future. Now instead of fearing the God who speaks from heaven with fire, he feared a woman who speaks from her palace with hate. Instead of being filled with faith, he was filled with fear. Because when faith is displaced, fear will always rush in. I'm on a boat with Jesus and his disciples. It's a rough, stormy evening. And as they work to keep the boat heading the right way, Jesus is asleep. And... They can't keep going any longer and the storm's getting stronger and they begin to really fear what's going to happen and with panic now hitting them, they grab Jesus and they shake Jesus awake. You remember the story, I preached about it way back last year. And Jesus stands up and he says to them, O ye of much fear. No, he doesn't. He stands up and he says to them, O ye of Little faith. 
When fear hits a Christian, it's truly a faith issue, not a fear issue. Fear is the byproduct of declining faith. So we conquer fear, not by first facing our fears. That's the cart before the horse. We conquer fear by firstly renewing our faith. Notice the illogical action that Elijah begins to spiral within himself, okay? In 1 Kings chapter 19, first thing he does is he ditches his friends. When in a crisis of faith, crippled by fear, the thing you need most are good friends to pull you through. I have four that I lean on. I wouldn't be here today if those four didn't help pull me through life. Here's an aside, I'll not, I'll not charge you for this one. It's extra, okay? It's interesting that there's no such thing as a church service in the New Testament. No such thing as a church service in the New Testament. The early church met. They met God. They met one another. They shared and celebrated each other. They ate and they drank and they listened to preaching until past midnight. I'm always nervous when people who need to do something, like Christians, they need to do something when they meet. We must have a Bible study. We've lost the art of just meeting. And there's so much help and strength found in meeting with other Christians, just meeting with them. Elijah did the wrong thing. He went and hid in a cave when instead he should have gathered his friends around him and met together with Christ in the midst. And then he goes and he hangs out in the desert under a shrub or under a tree and he throws a pity party with only he and God invited to it. His fear led him to lose perspective. Oh, 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 oh. How many times does that happen in our lives? We lose perspective. Churches can be dreadful places for people to lose perspective. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a month preaching in that. It's also why I suggest every single person visits a developing country, a slum, at least once. That brings you back to perspective. First world problems. Man, I couldn't park close to the church this morning. Only 8% of the world own a vehicle. People around the world have walked two, three, four hours to get to church. I'm so tired of eating at all the restaurants near me. Really? My iPhone 6 just can't store all my selfies. The church AC was too cold today, so I really couldn't worship very well. It's hard to worship this morning. The music was too loud. What? When you jettison faith, perspective goes out the window. Molehills are turned into mountains. Dislikes are turned into causes to hate. Secondary issues are made primary. Non-essentials are made non-negotiables. That's the life of so many churches that end up dead. 
And the more you do this, the more you move closer to your own pity party. There's a church that keeps asking me to go and preach. I won't go. I'll tell you why. Because when I go there, it's just a pity party. Notice what Elijah prayed. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. This is the same guy who stood before the king and proclaimed the truth and then hides in a brook for a year, became a refugee for two years, then had a showdown on Mount Carmel and every word he's spoken came true. But now after a significant victory up the mountain, he wants to give up and he loses touch with reality and he fails to see his own history. His fear caused him to lose perspective. I'm reminded of a story as I finish here about the Covenanters. The Covenanters were Christians in Scotland who had to hide because they were being persecuted by the state church. And they hid out in the hills in Scotland in the late 17th century. And uh, the troops of the king's army were after them because they wanted to obliterate the free faith. And the story goes of of a little boy, a son of a Covenanter. And he bravely volunteered to come out from the hills and the caves where they were hiding to sneak into a nearby town to hopefully find a sympathizer and beg for some food. He succeeded and he's got some food from a sympathizer and now he's trying to make his way back to the hills and the caves where his family and the other covenanters were and he's hiding behind stone dikes and he's crouching under bushes but when he rounds a corner he's met by a group of English soldiers and he's trapped, he couldn't escape. Grabbing the young lad, the sergeant, the strong sergeant, holds him by the scruff of the neck and he holds him over the edge of the mountain pathway with his feet dangling in the air over a nearly bottomless ravine. And the sergeant commands him that he tell where there are the rest of the covenanters where, or, and if he doesn't tell him, he's going to drop him down the ravine. And the boy was silent. And the sergeant shook him And shook him even more, but still the boy did not squeak. And eventually the the sergeant told him that unless he shared the whereabouts of the covenanters, he would drop him down the ravine to his death. And the young boy looked at the depth of the ravine and then looked back at the face of the sergeant. And in a Scottish accent, he says, it's deep, mister. But it's no as deep as hell. And I'm no telling you. And the sergeant dropped him. He hadn't lost perspective. His faith enabled him to see a different perspective. And that faith perspective kept fear away. Now look what happened to Elijah. As he sank deeper and deeper into his depression and self-pity party, God shows up in a new way. It's what we call a theophany. And Elijah sees a freshly baked cake and some cool thirsting water. And he says, okay, if you can do that now, why did I have to put up with lousy raven food for years? No, he doesn't say that. He takes it and he's refreshed and he's ready to engage again with faith. I got to finish because we want to honor the kids and they're finishing just a bit now as well. Perhaps this morning you're worn out. Perhaps you're tired. Perhaps you're losing perspective. Perhaps you're making wrong choices. God wants to come and reveal himself to you this morning. He wants to touch you with his tenderness. See, I don't know what picture you've got of God. He's not behind you with a whip. 
He's in front of you, urging you to come forward. He's not over you like a bully, pushing you on. He's a heavenly father who wants to pull you into himself and just hold you. He's not like a sheepdog biting at your heels. He's a shepherd wanting to carry you on his shoulders. When you look and you see this self-pity and total loss of perspective that Elijah has, <laughs> you and I might be of the habit to just say, well, up to you, man. If that's how you want to be, go away and wallow in your pity party. But that's not God. He knows what he's asked you to do before. He knows the many times you've responded in faith. He knows how far you come. And I believe he'll come and he'll touch you when the last few miles seem hard. God wants to come around you with tenderness. And in the making of a meal, in ancient culture, the making of a meal is he's offering you his friendship. So my last point, the invitation is to become a friend of God. Amen. We're not going to pray. We're just going to stay silent for a few moments. We're going to keep that word on the screen. This is the blow it away, blow my mind invitation of the almighty God. To those of us who are struggling with fear and pity, we're thinking... The world's against us, and I don't know if I've got enough faith to keep going. The invitation of the eternal God is to say, let me be your friend. Let me be your friend. Just sit quiet. Count to 30 seconds, and then you can leave. But for those 30 seconds, just look at that invitation. Remember the friends in Faraha? But remember more the friend of God reaching out his hand. And when your silence is finished and you've grasped it, it's washed over you, run and get your kids. May God bless.